0: Hello, and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher, and I'm joined by Jordan Kostelak, who's JLL's director for PropTech in the Asia Pacific. Jordan, thank you for joining all the way from Hong Kong. Great to see you. Now, you're focusing on PropTech, innovation. It's obviously a tough market globally, some specific issues across Asia-Pac. Tell us about how you're doing business and how you're making things work in the current climate. What are some of the challenges you're seeing?
1: I think the biggest challenge that we're seeing is just an overall, I guess Warren Buffett would call this like the tide coming out, right? The market is really like, I should say the global markets are really trying to reconcile themselves, whether it's the issues with inflation or it's the issues that we're seeing like in China with the real estate sector there, all of the known unknowns, that's really, I think, from the transaction side what's slowing everything down, and when there's not as much transaction volume globally, there's not as much profit to go around, right? So when we look at the real estate sector at large, the money is made in the transactions. And so I think when you don't have so much blood left to squeeze from a stone, you start to look at, okay, now what do we do? How do we as an industry or we as an organization start to either mitigate loss or to continue growth or to stay afloat. And in Asia, Asia lags a bit, right? Our markets aren't as reactive because there's only really a top layer of transactions. There's the A plus premium and there's sort of everything below that, especially in the emerging markets. Those don't really get touched by the big players. But I think where there's some really interesting opportunity is where volume lies. And to me, that is data. So I'm sure as the course of our conversation goes on, we'll be talking about some of the really cool stuff that's come out in the last few weeks with AI. And while those are really interesting and novel, they rely on this really abundant data out there, basically the internet But when you look into individual domains and sectors, like the property sector, there's a lot of proprietary data that I would say is being created and evaporated. And what I mean by that is the everyday processes of management, which are not seen as sort of lucrative, they're not cash-rich or profitable parts of the business relative to transactions, they are creating tons of data that's not being captured yet. And that data, you know, the cliche has been that data is the new oil. And I think too often that gets reduced to meaning like, oh, it's a commodity the way that oil is. But no, what it means is it's the fuel of the machines of tomorrow. And with things like DALI and all of these stable diffusion type of tools, and now this week chat GPT, we're seeing just how powerful huge amounts of data going into these machines really can be. And so that's where I think the big potential lies. And that's where a lot of my focus has been of recent. Mm.
0: Tell us a bit about how you've ended up in the role you're in. We'll come back to the market in a minute, because the scale of various Asian city markets and the opportunity, but still the risks of some of the emerging markets, despite the scale of places like Jakarta, it doesn't quite seem like it's going to be an institutionally investable market for a while. But I'm interested in how a good boy from Ohio like you has ended up in Hong Kong managing prop tech for one of the world's largest property companies. So tell us about that, Jordan.
1: Yeah, well, look, the joke I always make is you've clearly never been to Ohio if you have to ask why I left. But, you know, Ohio is <laughs> a wonderful place and I do miss home. I'm really looking forward to getting back next year. I was working in a warehouse in Ohio, so we call it a fulfillment center. But I started in the year two thousand, right out of high school, working in a warehouse. And back then people were afraid to use their surname on the internet, let alone a credit card, right? So direct to consumer logistics were we were calling it e-tailing back then, but it was just this crazy notion that you'd buy something from the Ether and it would show up at your house. But I got to really work closely with the end to end processes of, of fulfillment and I was always just not, I wouldn't say complaining, although I'm sure some people would categorize it as that, but I was always sort of picking apart what I thought didn't work in these processes. And through almost 10 years of working on that kind of stuff, I was put into positions that were doing that, break the process and put it back together in a way that works a little better than it did before. I guess break is probably the wrong word, deconstruct, right? And then reconfigure. So we called that business process reengineering. But half-joking earlier, I did get bored with Ohio. I think that I had traveled to see a friend in Montreal, and that cracked open this whole, like, oh, the world is much bigger, and there's so many strange and interesting things to see. And, and Montreal is, like, not that crazy different. I mean, it is from Ohio because it's like this old-world European city in North America. It's different from most. And it was different enough for me to go, oh, I want to see more of the big, wide world. So when the GFC hit... I was just like, all right, this is a chance to rethink my future. And I'd studied Mandarin in undergrad at Ohio State University, not as my major, but enough to get by. And so I chose to move to a city in central China. Whenever I told anybody about it, they'd say, where is that? city?" became famous a couple of years ago, uh, Wuhan. I used to tell people, hey... I'm moving to the city and they'd say, where's that? Everyone knows where it is now for unfortunate reasons. But I tell anyone now, it's an amazing place and people should still visit it when the opportunity comes up. I was meant to live there for about two years and come back after I'd finished my MBA remotely. But on the way there, I visited a friend here in Hong Kong, fell in love with the city. Anybody who's been here will understand why. So fell in love with Hong Kong. Relocated here and uh, got a job eventually with a boutique consultancy doing moves and change management. Essentially managing logistics, but for the relocation of operations of big multinationals. Yeah, With that comes change management types of methodologies. And mm. in that role, I ended up working under most of the big property and project management firms in some capacity or another. So eventually JLL said, hey, do you want to come do change management consulting and workplace strategy? That brought me into the organization. And then basically fast forward a couple of years after that, and I was complaining within our ranks. And again, it's a fine line between complaining and really trying to create improvements in how you do things
0: yeah i keep telling that to everyone that i work with as well so i hear you and i'm with you and lots of other people that work with me are also hearing you whether they're with you or not i'm not sure
1: (laughs) yeah look like i said it's a tightrope but i've heard it really nicely sort of described as like creative malfeasance or creative malcontent right you want to see something better but it does often manifest as
0: complaint or groaning
1: but i was just saying it's
0: curating innovation isn't it really that's what we're talking about
1: Well, yeah, look, I think at some point you can't have sort of progress without questioning whether something is perfect, right? You have to sort of question the perfection of whatever system is in place to create innovation. And my frustration at JLL, and credit to the leadership at JLL for listening to this, was I was like, we're preaching one thing and charging pretty significant consulting fees, but they're not reflected in what we're doing. And they said, well, then come tell us how we do it differently. So what was an externally facing sort of management consultancy gig just became turn that lens inward and see what we can do with our own transformation through this lens of technology. And that's the shortest version of this story I know how to tell.
0: Yeah. So let's focus on some of the things that need to be changed then, because You're right in that, I guess, Asia is an interesting market versus European real estate markets versus the US. You don't necessarily have the onion of so many different layers of property and of markets in the way that we certainly do in places like London. But you do have scale, and that's great if you're going to deploy some kind of innovation or tech product or service because you've got gazillions of people that are going to use it, right? And as you said many, many million gallons of oil, figuratively speaking, could be created. So given Asia has been obviously affected by COVID, in some cases more so than over here in London where I am, how are some of these various things being refracted through the current lens of change? Well,
1: look, I think the first thing to highlight about Asia is the dynamics of the challenges of this part of the world. So even in Europe, for the most part, you still have a single currency. While English is the lingua franca of...
0: Yes, the dollar.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, so the dollar, yeah. But over here, the US dollar doesn't cross borders quite as efficiently here, right? And I think the other really important thing is really the diversity of languages. Of course, other geographies have diverse languages as well. But... I think when you look at, let's say, Bahasa, Bahasa has a lot of similarities to English. Like as an English native speaker, like when I was living in Malaysia, I was picking up on Bahasa a lot faster. You don't sponge Chinese and Japanese, especially the written languages. And so there are, I think, user experience challenges that are not insurmountable. And actually it's kind of like, You know, my mother would always tell me when she was in high school, she would practice with a heavier shot put so that when she got to competition, she could throw better, right? To me, it's not insurmountable challenges on this side of the world. But if you can get something sort of road tested, especially in the emerging markets, when it comes to technology, if you can make it work across, say, Southeast Asia, so Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, and we'll say Malaysia and Indonesia, if you have a product that's showing success in all of those then it's definitely going to translate to other markets pretty easily because the diverse sets of challenges you have to sort of meet resourcefully. And that to me is interesting. And so one of the things we've really tried to do is look at those constraints as opportunities. So one of the things that we've built for JLL is augmented reality inspection and maintenance tools. And Augmented reality is interesting because it's intuitive, right? We all use this for Google Maps and navigation. So applying that same thing, that same level of precision of direction, is really interesting. But where we're discovering more and more interesting use cases is you can make a simple set of instructions using basically emojis. So literacy is not as big of an issue, right? So a lot of software, they just want to translate the UX to the local language. But what happens when the local language, the literacy rate is pretty low and the people that you're asking to do sort of the least glamorous bits of what goes into managing, say, a property, but also happens to create a lot of data, how do you overcome that? And that's, I think, to me, the manpower and the inexpensive nature of that manpower with the right sets of, say, digital picks and shovels, the amount of data is sort of incomprehensible. and so going back to my earlier point about you have proprietary data sets are going to feed these really interesting, sophisticated computational models that are coming up. That data has got to come from somewhere. And the more mature markets progress, the harder that data is going to be to capture because there's less and less availability for people to do those jobs. So this is what I think really one of the most important contributions that this side of the world can contribute because put a dot in the middle of Malaysia, and within a 1,000 kilometers, 60% of the world's population lives in that radius. And so there is volumetric power in the people that exist on my side of the
0: world. So what's coming out of that, though? Because we always look at Japan as the historic center of innovation, whether it's because we grew up playing Nintendo or anyone that's been to Japan that's walked around Akihabara looking at all of the electronics and games and TVs piled up, right? And it has that sense of wonder, the sense of just being one massive, great OLED screen, right? You walk around Shibuya and it's amazing. But you've just described kind of still using relatively low-paid labor to do menial jobs. So my question is, at what point is tech going to take over those jobs and enable people to be upskilled so that we can help drive up literacy in Indonesia or Malaysia?
1: It's a lot further away than... I think most people understand, especially people like you and I and that is because so much of tech innovation is really white collar solutions to white collar problems. I don't but like, a lot
0: of it is stuff people don't need. I mean a lot of the innovations, a lot of the decks that come across my desk are just another project management firm, another project management firm, and the world just doesn't need seven hundred thousand project management apps, right?
1: You're reinforcing my point there, right? In that those are white-collar solutions to white-collar problems. Like, whatever your pain points? Oh, I spend too much time making Gantt charts. It's like, except that you spend that time making Gantt charts in air-conditioned offices, you know, like, there's not enough attention being paid to, you know, like, there are things you can do to make the lives of those people, to way that those jobs are executed, easier and better to simple answer to your question is no one's really building the tools for the people that are doing the work. And when I say work, the work you have to roll your sleeves up to do. They call it low-skill work, but I think that's a reductive way to say, I didn't need to study a specialist thing to do this. But how much could you pay somebody to clean 40 bathrooms three times a day, which is what some of this work entails? So to kind of circle back to your question about japan and japan being the model of what people think of as being high tech in many ways it is i live in hong kong and i always sort of joke around because we have a lot of these huge lcd's i can look out my window right now and there's a massive screen that basically keeps my house lit up until about 11 p.m when it has to shut off but it's a bit of a veneer of modernity and that like yes we have these shiny things but No joke, I moved a year and a half ago, and when I wanted to cancel my internet at my old apartment, they asked me to fax them a cancellation form. And I'm like, you provide my internet. And the same thing is true in Japan. Many processes still require things like a rubber stamp, a little rubber stamp, right? And so I think a lot of it comes down to William Gibson has this famous quote. He says, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that misalignment can often be as much about the haves having too much as the have-nots not having enough. And what I mean by that is Japan is a great example. A lot of Japanese websites look really old by most of our Western perspectives. It's like, why does this look like this? Why is this rendered like a website from 2003? And the reason is in 2003 they had better hardware technology they were already looking at websites on mobile so they're optimized for 2003 mobile devices not for responsive websites that are rendered on the kind of tablets and phones that we have now of course they have these things but it's just an ingrained set of habits in the user experience there wasn't so much necessity because they had the nicer toys earlier than most of the world And so that misalignment, right? it can actually work to the detriment of the haves in this particular example. And so I think in terms of automating a lot of things in real estate, two things that I preach a lot is one, you're never going to get rid of brokers. I think this is one of the biggest mistakes that
0: Well, you would say that working for one of the world's biggest brokerages, Jordan, in fairness. Yeah, talk to any (laughs) of my broker
1: colleagues and they'll tell you I'm the most disagreeable. I think we bandy this word about disintermediation because it's easy to think the middleman doesn't have a point. But anybody who's worked closer with them, like I used to think for a long time, very reductively, all brokers don't really do much. But then I watch them work and I'm like, oh, I would hate to do your job. And you see where the actual work lies But I would say that in that, and this goes back to, I think, the same theme I have when it comes to the quote-unquote low-skill workforces, the job of technology is not to eliminate a sort of entity or role. It's to eliminate the tedium associated with that. Brokers can be better relationship managers if they're not sitting managing their Rolodex. (laughs) I'll I'll date myself by even using that term, but a CRM today. Like you take all the tedious aspects of sort of managing the data points within a CRM, and that means more time can be spent either cultivating new relationships or managing existing ones. And many so many
0: business owners shudder at the thought of using a CRM, don't they?
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of times it is because it's adding a digital set of steps. It's adding digital TDM on top of the already existing TDM, rather than sort of replacing it
0: let's come back to data because again this is one of these abstract concepts that mm. a lot of people in the real estate space don't really understand or appreciate people would think oh i've got some data tick a box move on to the next problem and no one's really thinking about the inputs the cleanliness how it's used the science and ultimately the business outcomes of having better data you talked before about commercializing about weaponizing it more I'm interested in some practical examples of that within, say, the Asian office market. Okay. So
1: I think one of the biggest ones that is just the biggest stone left unturned is around equipment lifecycle. Whether that equipment is the light bulbs or the smoke detectors, the toilet roll holder, or as we get up into the more higher stakes stuff, a fire extinguisher or an HVAC system. Anecdotally, the building engineer or the property manager might know, hey, this brand kind of sucks, but that's their own sort of collective body of knowledge and exists within their head. But every day inspections of these things are being carried out and we don't have comparable data. We don't have a sort of consumer data set about how, frequently they need repaired, how expensive they are. And so we don't really understand the value outside of the expertise of an engineer, an engineering manager, whatever it might be. So any inspection and maintenance process that's performed, again, by these quote-unquote low-skilled workers is a potential source of data, is an act of compliance they have to perform but it still seems to be separate. 99.99% of the time that gets put on a sheet of paper and then maybe that point zero zero one it gets keyed into a database. But even that disconnected processes means the person who keys it in has to be able to read the handwriting of the person who wrote it down. And we're not getting important bits of data like the time and date stamp of when that happened. The so what,
0: What's the ultimate yeah. pitfall of this? I mean, well, other than I the occasional tragedy where a building burns down and someone hasn't done the safety check, but those are quite rare.
1: Yeah, so if you only look at the potential liability cost and not the opportunity cost, yes, that's a fair characterization. But the fact of the matter is, is when legislation comes through that, hey, your building needs to be a certain amount of energy compliant by 2030 and you don't have that data, you're going to pay a premium on the open market to replace your HVAC system and do a bunch of capital works just to make your building compliant for the next degree of regulation. If that kind of information is available, you're going to make better buying decisions. And so when we're talking about, is any one of those in isolation a huge impact? Maybe. I mean, when you think about The example I just gave with the HVAC system, yeah, there's a huge capital works and a building that you might be considering selling on the open market, if it's already compliant for a coming regulation, chances are you're going to actually make a little more by having that done and having that information. So it could have single impact, but the aggregate of that is what makes the most powerful players today. The proxies that exist in other domains is what makes Amazon Amazon or Google Google. Is they have these very granular and the aggregate data that goes with that. And your question too about data structures. How much time and productivity is just lost in the confusion of the absence of data standards in our industry? My favorite example for Asia is probably the financial capital of Vietnam is sometimes Ho Chi Minh, sometimes it's Ho Chi Minh City, sometimes it's Saigon, sometimes it's HCM, right? Or sometimes it's HCMC, and you will have a data set, a CRM, like we were talking about earlier, where the same client might be listed four or five times and duplicated simply because different people have listed the city differently, right? Same multinational might exist five times because the city's been listed five different ways. when it comes to data I think that there's two really important things that the industry needs to be conscientious of. Data is far less proprietary than it was 20 years ago. Like you don't have a greater edge I think as a broker because you know certain things like some of it's very easily dug out in the public domain if you've got decent Google foo But I think we're continually fighting over a shrinking piece of the pie by not coming together as an industry, whether it's the property providers or it's the developers or anyone else, and trying to create a better set of standards. And I know... you know, So what does that look like then?
0: Does that mean you guys have to work with CBRE and pull together data sets to solve out some of these problems? Is that ever going to happen?
1: Well, do I think it's going to happen the way that we see the world now? Probably not. But I do think that emerging technologies like blockchain... Are going to actually start to push the market pressure that you have to participate that at least at a certain minimum. And I think. Explain what like me, that means,
0: just for people that are a bit. Obviously, you know, we've seen the rise and fall of FTX in recent months, and, <laughs> and you know, everyone's kids have got a few bitcoins hidden under the pillow, right? But explain in plain English for people listening to this how you would see blockchain potentially impacting. Processes, whether that's transactions, valuations, or any of the deep tech innovations that we haven't come onto yet?
1: Yeah. So I think it's important first to draw a distinction between cryptocurrency and blockchain. So, cryptocurrency is the trading of essentially, at least as I see it, securities that is managed on a public ledger or a blockchain. What I'm talking about, the application of blockchain in this case, is you're talking about an append-only database. So that means every record is a new record on top of the existing records. Now, we're not going to get into the data structures and how the different nodes and everything work because that varies from chain to chain. What the audience, for the sake of this conversation, needs to be understood is records can only be added to this and the information is public. And why that's important is it will allow a certain amount of wider accountability to things like the thing that sort of bites my tail the most at the moment is greenwashing or what I like to call not necessarily greenwashing but green standing. is people offering without evidence this idea that their product or solution is somehow beneficial to the environment. The only way to really prove that is to prove that, is to show the information publicly. And so with blockchain, where I see huge opportunity is not all the data associated with those processes that I outlined before, but certain data points being made part of a set of standards and being publicly available, whether that is things like what we discussed in terms of how a city or a district is defined Or it's more things like the metrics for how carbon is embodied in construction processes. Some parts of that being made public across many projects and across many providers will allow the broader industry and the public, right, to hold all of these things to better account. But only when
0: that's made public. And this happens with some things at the minute, doesn't it? If you think about... In the states, how mortgage data is totally public, whereas in the UK and Europe it's not. Which is why America has got a thriving CNBS market, and UK we don't because that data set is available.
1: Yep, yeah. and I think public data sets are useful, but I think what blockchain will enable is the public data sets for people to have proprietary application of what those are. So you'll have your own data that sidecars to this. And, like, this is how we have taken this publicly available data and then any data we're capturing. By the publicly available data being on something like a blockchain, people can actually sort of, if you use borrow from medical terms, kind of get a second opinion from providers and then figure out who's giving them what truly sort of answers their challenges. And so I think that's where that... I'm kind of at a loss of how to describe it and I want to be careful because you know this is sort of the rabbit hole you go down with blockchain. The use cases are still very hard to articulate, but what I would say is anything that we have like where the need for trust can be too concentrated. That's what I mean to say. There's a concentration risk. And I'll give you a great example from here in Hong Kong. There was a large public works project done here in Hong Kong, and the former main contractor of that project went insolvent halfway through the project and had to be bailed out by the government endowment. And it was because they were paying their arrears with the liquidity that was put in with basically the escrow account for this project. And that is another problem, like, do we want every dollar and cent of those transactions to be on a blockchain? Not necessarily, but what we can see is...
0: Didn't help FTX, did it? But,
1: well, so FTX... Is, people
0: are still going to commit fraud, regardless of any...
1: Leg- the argument crypto people would make, and I don't fully agree with this, and I think your point is right. People are going to try to commit fraud, and there's no such thing as a perfect system. But the argument I think crypto proponents would make is that this happened on a centralized exchange, right? And that is what happens, is when you centralize anything and they can go behind a curtain that's when, you know, the sort of three-card Monty starts happening. And, you know, again, I don't fully subscribe to that because I think decentralization has its own inherent risk, and there's a sort of push and pull of those two forces of centralization and decentralization. But I do think we have not even scratched the surface of the potential of blockchain and an agreed set of standards that could come with it for
0: this industry. Let's reverse out of the blockchain black hole for a couple of minutes. In terms of some of the broader trends that you're seeing across the Asia region, what are those? What are some of the interesting prop tech businesses that you have engaged with, worked with in any way? What stuff should we be getting excited about?
1: You know, I have my personal preferences. So I think stylistically, I always love, ironically, I'm a gadget nerd, but I really love low-tech solutions. So that goes back to what I said before, some interesting stuff where you're putting just better tools in the hands of people who are doing the least desirable work. An interesting one that I've been working with is a company called Geometrid out of Singapore. They basically send QR... How do you spell that?
0: Geometric.
1: Geometrid. So like geometry with an R-I-D... And what they do is they send QR codes, which QR codes are a really elegant piece of tech. It's a seemingly dead-on-arrival technology. This is a great example. QR codes are a Japanese technology, and they were an elegant solution to a problem. And then they sort of died because they didn't get worldwide adoption until China needed to have something to allow for phone-to-phone and, you know, inter device communication without putting expensive NSC chips and everything. Everything had a camera, so now all of a sudden this technology is viable again. They send QR codes to the fabricators of say glass cladding for construction projects. They connect each one of those codes to each one of those elements that goes into the asset, and then they put all that into a BIM model, and you've essentially created a, you know, like almost like DHL type of tracking for where each piece of the asset is at. So the BIM model is constantly updated. You have a digital real-time update of the progress of that build. So you can see what percentage is done in fabrication, where it's at in shipping, all of these things by simply glancing and toggling the BIM model. What makes that interesting, it's not particularly high-tech, it's just a sort of clever use of low-tech, but it verifies the work done by the workers. So, you know, That example I gave you before about a main contractor losing most of an escrow account because they've paid other debts, that can go away. But not only does that allow payments to be better managed by whoever's underwriting those payments, but more importantly, what I think it does is it allows for elasticity of those payments relative to service-level agreements. So if the fabricator's slow, we can charge them a bit more to speed up the shipping. If everyone's fast and there's a bit of a bonus, well, you're probably under budget because your construction project's done, right? So it actually allows for a push and pull between time and budget. Because, you know, one of our advisors to this, he said something really great. He said, I don't manage budgets, I manage delay, right? As a civil engineer, that's what he says his role is. And I think that ultimately the resource we don't get back is time. And we usually try to make up for that for money. So if we can measure that, more fractionally and then pay out accordingly. I think that's gonna make for better construction projects. What makes this interesting to me at a bigger level is this is capturing some really interesting data on accident and we really haven't started to analyze that data. We're just continuing to do the job with this product. But going back to the points we made before as we start to get more and more of this data, as it aggregates, to really find out some interesting things about carbon emissions or carbon embodiment. There are a lot of things that can start to be extracted simply by capturing that data. But where I think it's the most interesting is the work is verified by the person who's doing it. Construction industry likes to use this term ground truth. That's the purest form of ground truth is someone verifying that they've done their job. And now we know what the collective output of, 100 people on a shift
0: has been. No, it's interesting. I mean, there's a business in England called Qflow that uses QR codes to track construction materials and construction waste out of sites that have been working a lot with the likes of Landsex, GPE, some of the bigger London-based office REITs. So it's certainly an interesting area. In terms of the funding universe, Jordan, clearly there's been a massive write-down in global tech stocks over the last, well, not just six months, 12 months during 2022. What does the funding I mean look like as we move into Q1, Q2 of 2023 for technology businesses? I mean, there's still quite a lot of money there that's been raised by the VC community, but the era of the magic money tree is probably coming to an end, isn't it?
1: Well, look. Let's rewind the tape on our industry and on kind of your point about FTX, right? Like the fundamental question of FTX is what was the biggest point of failure? They got a lot of funding. You know, the story that's been circulating around is Sam Bankman-Fried was playing a video game while pitching one of his biggest investors, and they were gushing over that. And I think that this is not the first time we've seen this. You know, the WeWork 1.0 story has (laughs) become the stuff of legend as well. I don't think that the tide has fully come out on that yet, if I'm being very honest from what I'm seeing. I think that you're seeing more hesitation with deploying capital at the moment across most projects. I think it's still, from my experience and from the conversations I'm privy to, you know, whether it's startups I advise and the the feedback they're getting back from investors. It seems like it's more of a crutch or a reason to just like hesitate or negotiate terms, especially with early stage startups. But to your point and to the analysis of PitchBook last year, there's still a ton of dry powder out there, maybe a little more gun shy. But I would still say that there's still a fundamental absence of sharper domain expertise when it comes to venture capital flowing into sectors like property technology and you know where
0: i so the vcs just don't understand real estate
1: i'm painting with a broad brush here i've met a lot of really smart vcs who do understand real estate but i will say a lot of them trying to enter prop tech the first thing they sort of say is oh we've got something that will eliminate brokers and the joke i make with all of them, I said, you don't understand. Brokers are like the cockroaches of the real estate world. A nuclear blast will go off and they'll be scurrying around. And that's not an insult. I'm saying they've got the survival skills. KLL is not a 250-year-old tech company. We're not a 250-year-old property management company. We're a 250-year-old brokerage that's also expanded into these other businesses. That is the business that has stood the test of time. And, you know, so much of what I've seen when external people come into this sector is they go after what they would call the low-hanging
0: fruit, and so it's it, the project management software. That's why we've got so much of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, and again, it's like it's, there's three main sort of categories in prop tech that have seen oversaturation, and I think I know the reason why. So number one is residential transactions, and that's because literally everyone deals with that pain point. It's a universal problem getting a home. So we all think that there's a lot of problems to be solved, and there are, but you know, I don't think that means we need another Zillow. Project management is another one, and it's because project management is inherently a calculated discipline. You're literally calculating time and money and the time value of money, So it's easy to come up with metrics and calculations as to how much of a solvable problem this is. And so it's sort of the worst exaggeration of that old sort of cliche of if it can be measured, it can be managed. But this is an example of too much measurement creating too much inherent demand for management, which neither one is necessarily there. And then the last one is sort of energy. Again, Energy has been measured ever since it's been piped into buildings. And so it's just a little easier to grab, snag, and to quantify. And that's a sweet spot for inbound investment. But where I hope to see some change in the next few years is not the volume of investments. I think it will continue to go up, but I'd really like to see more investment in the world of prop tech. Thinking about what it means when we say... Sort of we as actors in this industry, we love to sort of throw up our hands and say, Oh, our industry is laggards. Okay, well, that's okay. You can't have a hundred lead dogs. You've got to have the whole pack sort of lined up. If you understand that you are a laggard, how do you take the full, how do you fully capitalize on that to create innovation? And I would say we're not developing cutting-edge AI in the property world, but if we build tools that anticipate and extract the data that would make good use of that AI that we're seeing for ChatGPT, that's the smart move that we can be making. My sort of working thesis, personally, and what I try to bang the drum on within our own organization, is there's not going to be another Amazon probably in my lifetime, but every sector has room for an Amazon within it. Like someone who's sort of taken the very root problems solve them internally, and then sort of capitalise on those tools to the external markets. And so that's what I hope we do at JLL. Mm.
0: Final thought, Jordan. We've not really talked about decarbonizing. Well, We've talked a little bit about sustainability. How much of a concern is climate change seen as being in the markets that you operate within? And if there's one final thought from this conversation, what can we expect during 2023 in terms of mitigating climate risk?
1: I think the whole climate conversation, we need to remind ourselves of some themes that have come up through the course of our conversation. I think number one is the future is already here. It's not evenly distributed. The climate problems of mature nations are not the same as those of emerging nations. Like, they don't care about burning coal in a place where electricity only operates two to three hours a day. And so we have to be conscientious about the different set of expectations we should hold, again, the more prosperous economies versus those that are still emerging. I think that theme is a really important one. And then the other one I would say is that, you know, decarbonization, even that whole thing, is like it's undoing the damage that sort of led to us being in developed places. So decarbonization is not necessarily everyone's responsibility evenly, but that doesn't mean that it isn't a critical one. I just think when you look at the symptoms of what the climate change is creating, it's creating more dramatic problems in the places that haven't had a chance to catch up. When a typhoon hits Hong Kong, Everyone sort of cheers because it usually means we get a day off of work. Now, COVID killed that. We don't get typhoon days because we all just are expected to work from home. But previously, if a typhoon came and it was a certain signal, everyone got the day off and usually people made their way to the pub. But that same typhoon would then hit Thailand and destroy several villages or something. Right. And so that's what I mean is like I'm not trying to virtue signal when I say these things. I'm just trying to contextualize. And so what do I expect to see in 2023? I hope to see more and more focus on better materials, and I think the bigger focus globally or the bigger sort of trend globally will be revitalization rather than sort of brownfield type of building, right? We're realizing that we've been pretty gluttonous for development, whether it's the extreme examples of the Chinese development market, or it's just the fact that in places like Singapore, or even here in Hong Kong, this wonderful, amazing old architecture that could be preserved and modernized rather than completely demolish it and replace it with another glass and steel tower. And all of that's very reductive, but I know we've been talking for a while. And like, I think the climate challenge is the most important, obviously. But one of the things I've said in a number of conversations like this is I do think that there's way too much of the green standing that I mentioned before. And usually the red flag for whether or not somebody's green standing is that they don't show you anything. Adam Newman in WeWork 1.0 used to use this phrase, wait till they see what's under the hood. And by the time everyone did, it became the stuff that we know it to be today, the stuff of legend. And so I think with something that is so existentially critical to everyone involved in this conversation, it's on us to say, show me the evidence. None of this can be so proprietary because it's all of our problem. Of course, there are some intellectual property that you might want to preserve, but you should be able to show most of how something works. And I think there's still a big absence of that. I think people still hide behind a shroud of propriety to maybe do something that's not as effective as they might be convincing themselves
0: that it is in tackling this challenge yeah no absolutely well look let's leave it there. there's some really fascinating thoughts there jordan Kostolak from jll prop tech out in hong kong jordan lovely to meet you great to see you great to have you on Propcast. thanks very much for coming on thank you very much to everybody for listening you can subscribe via Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. And we need to find some uh, Hong Kong channels as well because I don't think we have any yet. So uh, something maybe you can help us with. But thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon.